Blog Talk Radio. Well, welcome everyone. We are glad you're able to join us for this next episode of Crime and Science Radio. Today's show is Car Crashes and Crime Hotspots, Studying Patterns to Prevent Crime. And we're very happy to have with us Greg Collins, who's the Research and Analysis Manager for the Shawnee, Kansas Police Department. And we're going to learn more about his background in a moment. Um, And also... Dr. Kevin Bryant, uh, Professor and Chair of the Department of Sociology and Criminology at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. And I just want to say that we came across a really interesting study um, uh, from the National Institute of Justice that brought us to invite these gentlemen to join us today that seemed to have two things that you wouldn't necessarily connect in your mind um, of car crashes and other kinds of crime. And so we asked them to talk to you about it so you could become more aware of this really um, interesting development in law enforcement. So um, let's start by getting to know more about each of you. So Greg, we'll start with you. Tell us about your background and, and what drew you to a career in law enforcement. Well, um, I didn't. I wasn't one of those people who always dreamed about being in law enforcement. I was uh, uh, I was married, had a couple of young kids, knew a couple of police officers, was looking for a change in careers, and uh, it looked like something that would provide some stability, a long-term career uh, possibility, so I, I uh, took the leap. I learned after I got hired that uh, what I was doing which before, which was uh, some customer service kinds of things, uh, really had a lot of application within the police department and police world. Uh, being able to help people solve problems is, is a big part of the job, and so a lot of what I had learned in a previous career actually helped me out in uh, law enforcement, even though I hadn't connected the dots prior to that. Hmm. So, and you, you not only, um, I mean, you started, I guess, as most people do in patrol, but you've had several different positions, and you've been through a whole time within the Shawnee Department, right? Yes, yes. I started in 1991, and uh, I uh, started out as a patrol officer, and uh, while a patrol officer, I was transferred in and uh, became a D.A.R.E. officer, teaching the the D.A.R.E. curriculum in in grade schools and then in uh, middle schools. And then I was... uh, uh, moved into a detective position for a short period of time, uh, and during that period of time, I tested for sergeant, became a patrol sergeant, was transferred into training, and was uh, uh, the person in charge of uh, training for the police department. Then uh, after that, uh, I was uh, transferred into a traffic unit supervisor position, 
and that was where I was uh, when I transitioned into my uh, civilian position that I'm in right now. And, and Kevin, you, you meandered into the uh, arena of sociology and criminology. How did you end up there, and, and what interested you in that? Well, that's a good way to put it, because that's exactly what happened. Um, I, um, you've done your research. Uh, uh, as an undergraduate, I, I really struggled early on. I, I started off at Creighton University and ended up transferring back home, quote-unquote, to Kansas State and was still really struggling, didn't know what I wanted to do, and I had to actually take a semester of retaking classes. That's how, that's how bad a shape I was in academically. And one of the professors, um, I was retaking sociology. I had to, uh, my first attempt at intro to sociology didn't go well. I'm retaking it, and I was just completely blown away by the new instructor I had for the second attempt. Um, he could have been teaching just about any discipline, and I probably would have majored in that. I, I knew then that's what I wanted to do. He had the classroom of 150 students just captivated and, um, I, I knew then that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a professor, and it it took a while. I, I knew as a kid that I, I liked the social sciences. I was always into maps and cartography, and uh, I basically read the encyclopedia backwards and forwards, literally almost, um, as a kid, and, um, and so it was all kind of a natural fit. It all kind of came together under Henry Camp. He was uh, quite a guy, still considering a mentor and a friend. Uh, and uh, he, he's what got me started. And really, criminology didn't come until graduate school. I got into graduate school at K-State, uh, finished second in the major after that rough start, uh, got into the, the department and uh, met another influential person named Dennis Ronsek, who uh, unfortunately passed away in 2006. But he is really um, an unsung, underrated criminologist in the history of the discipline, and uh, he really got me interested in ecological studies of crime and the idea of, of looking at high crime places rather than criminal motivation. And it, it just kind of fit together with all of my interests. It had the mapping thing going on, and uh, I became very interested in, in crime and criminology under him. And, and, you know, it just really took off after that. So it's been it's – been, uh, it's not been a linear thing, but it's been um, it's it's been uh, an interesting uh, journey. It is amazing how you know great teachers <clears throat> that you've been exposed to are here to stay with you forever. It's, yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. You you can hear their voices. You know the things they taught you. It's amazing. I've, oh yeah. I've had plenty in my career, and it's, you look back and say, "Wow, was that lucky?" <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Greg, you. Uh, you are the research and analysis manager uh, for the Shawnee PD. Uh, this doesn't sound like a position that's very common in police departments to me. So tell us about that, what it does, and what you do there. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, I agree with you. I don't. The the actual what I do probably is not that common for one person to be doing in a police department. And the way this position came about was kind of a, a weird story in and of itself. Uh, I, like I said, I was a police officer, and I gave that up in order to be a civilian. And, well, the reason I, I was kind of forced to give it up, 
my vision was beginning to fail, and you have to have pretty good vision to be working as a police officer, and I saw that I couldn't safely do the job anymore and realized that being a police officer is a little bit like being a professional athlete. You know, you have to have certain skills and capabilities in order to continue on, and so I went to the, the department, and I told them that I thought I was going to have to uh, take a medical retirement, and they had already had in mind creating a position that uh, at the time they were thinking maybe accreditation manager or something like that, but they weren't quite ready for that. So they developed this position, and uh, uh, they didn't want my experience and training and all that go to go to waste, so they put me in this position. Uh, I feel very fortunate that they did because they gave up a sworn position in order to have this civilian. So it was really a, uh, quite an amazing thing for the department to do that. A lot of what I do is typically uh, in other departments spread amongst several different people, um, but in my case, because... I'm available and can do it, they, they lumped a lot of different jobs uh, uh, for me to do, and research is part of it, policy development is part of it. We are now enrolled in an accreditation process, so now I'm, I'm the accreditation manager, and then I also am, am the uh, person who oversees our crime analysis function at the police department. So it's kind of wear a bunch of different hats, but it's really enjoyable and, and interesting all at the same time. Yeah, I just realized as we're talking here, um, both of my parents are from Kansas and, and a lot of my relatives live there. So I know where your cities are. How <laughs> 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 honest for those who, who don't have such a strong personal connection to Kansas, um, yeah. where Shawnee and Benedictine College are. Well, I'll start with Shawnee. Shawnee is on, uh, is on the the eastern border of the state of Kansas. So we are part of the Kansas City metropolitan area. And the Kansas City metropolitan area spans two states. There's a Kansas City in Missouri. There's a Kansas City in Kansas. And then there are all these uh, uh, smaller suburb cities that are that are within that. Uh, I think it's uh, a 14-county area that makes up the metropolitan uh, area, and we are on the western edge of that metropolitan area. It's about a 20-minute drive in downtown Kansas City, Missouri, from where where we are located. Um, Atchison is north of the Kansas City metro area, about an hour. Uh, I got to know the drive really well from here to Shawnee. Uh, one hour, almost to the second, um, and. Uh, Drove that route many, many. I think I could probably do it uh, blindfolded, but I wouldn't recommend that. Um, <laughs> but um, Ashton is the home of Amelia Earhart. That's probably what we're most famous for, along with the presence of the college here. Uh, Benedictine College has been here since 1858, so it's been a long-standing institution here in the community. In fact, it's just up the street from where Amelia Earhart grew up, and um, that's probably what the town is most known for. It's about 10,000 students. Uh, 10,000 students, 10,000 residents, if you can edit that. Um, and um, it's, uh, you know, the college is growing. I can't really say the same for Atchison, but it's it's kind of a neat place. That's great. Well, let's talk about the study. Um, let's start by, now, do you just pronounce this DDAX when you talk about it, the D-D-A-C-T-S? Yes. Okay, so yes. what, what are DDAX? Um, well, DDAX states an acronym. Yes. Yeah, it stands for stands for data driven approaches to crime and traffic safety. 
And I, I can probably say that a little slower. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and what are those? Well, it's a single, it's, it's a philosophy, um, more so than it is a program. It's a philosophy that has been adopted by several law enforcement departments. In fact, really, Shawnee was one of the early um, uh, users of, of this philosophy, which is really all-encompassing. It's not, doesn't just involve patrol, doesn't just involve the, the administrative. It's really the entire department adopts this um, philosophy that encourages police citizen encounters, actually. Uh, it also encourages high visibility enforcement, uh, particularly in areas, and this is the controversial part, I guess, I think the controversy is over uh, after our study and a few others, but um, the idea that um, we should allocate police resources in areas where crime is very high disproportionately and traffic accidents, and uh, I think that was kind of antithetical to uh, much of criminology before um, the last, you know, the last decade or so, uh, a little bit less than that. Um, but, uh, it, it's a, it's a top down, it's a, a department-wide philosophy, and I think that that was something that, that we'll talk about perhaps a little bit later in the study. One of the important things is we needed buy-in, and I think we, we got it, but it was, it, it, it took work. Um, because it does encourage police officers to think a little bit differently than, and traditional police, and I'll let Greg speak about that. Well, and when we talk about data-driven, what that means is rather than just randomly patrolling the, uh, the city and uh, just being in all, all areas of the city at all times, we're using information with regard to where crimes are happening, where crashes are happening, and in locations where both of those things are happening at a disproportionate rate, which means higher than, than other parts of the city, then we want to drill down, use uh, uh, time analysis to find out, okay, when are those things happening, and uh, then directing our officers to spend time in those areas making high visibility traffic stops. And so that's why... Uh, the, the nice thing about being data-driven is you're not just guessing at where to go. You're using information to put your officers in a place where they're likely to have the most impact. And the funny thing about it, and when Kevin mentioned it, we'll, we'll get to it some more, is, uh, you know, it's based on making traffic stops. And traffic stops have, have been thought of to be useful for reducing uh, traffic crashes and in some cases, some crime-fighting uh, 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 incidences, like, like doing interdiction stops and that sort of thing, looking for drugs and, and, and uh, those kinds of crimes. But uh, when we, when we uh, started asking officers to spend time doing traffic stops, which is something that's basic and they learn to do in the academy, there was a little bit of a of a, a backlash, and I think it had to do with, um, you know, telling them when to do it as opposed to them having the autonomy to decide, this is when I'm going to do it, this is where I'm going to do it. And so it was something that was a little bit surprising to us when we first started out with this. So this is, this has a theoretical background as we're kind of getting into here. So. Tell us a little more about hotspots and earlier studies that discussed crime pattern theory. 
Which I think is this, yeah. <laughs> well, the interesting thing about this is, is that probably one of the oldest forms of social science involved the use of maps to try to determine uh, differences in crime rates across different districts or units, other units of analysis as well in Western Europe in the early part of the 19th century, really, as soon as government statistics began to become released, particularly in countries like Belgium and France, researchers such as uh, Kivalet and Gary and a few others in, in England and elsewhere began to analyze these statistics, and many of them, when they began to look at them, they found these differences in, in, in crime. It was not evenly distributed. There, were, there was variation. And um, variation means ex we need ex explanation, we need science. And so really, the birth of the social sciences in many ways started with the kind of so-called ecological school of criminology. It all, uh, in fact, disciplines such as sociology, geography, and criminology can all kind of go back to the work of Keeley and Gary and say that's where it began. So the idea that place is important um, is, you know, it began with the earliest uh, uh, ventures into social science. And really it was the Chicago School, though, in the early part of the 20th century that really began to, uh, uh, you know, take it to a different level, especially theoretically. Um, you have the work of Sean McKay and Ernest Burgess, all of these uh, social scientists at the University of Chicago who began to study gangs and and how um, different parts of the city, especially near the city center, had most of the crime, and these are the places that had the most um, heterogeneity and, and residential mobility, and, and all the ingredients we now know are correlated with high crime rates, and um, I think that's really where it all began. And so our study was, in, in I guess, implicitly based on that tradition. We weren't really trying to look at why an individual offender commits their crimes. We were, we're really looking at, like Greg mentioned, at the temporal and also the spatial uh, variation in crime rates. And we know that uh, in Shawnee and elsewhere, that's uh, uh, a variable. It's not evenly distributed across the city, like Greg said. Well, you mentioned, you know, your own studies, your own investigations, and, and any time you start an investigation, obviously data collection is is the bridge that you got to cross, the uh, good, bad, and ugly. It's not always that easy. How did you go about setting up uh, your own investigations? Well, as far as the uh, Shawnee Police Department, we actually hired our first crime analyst back in 2002. So we've had an analyst who's been collecting and, and analyzing data for a number of years. Uh, the difficulty, and, and I think some places are still experiencing this, is how to make that information operational. And that was the nice thing about DDAX is it, it, it takes all of that information, uh, collects it, puts it on a map, uh, identifies when we can expect those kinds of things to be happening, and then the, the operation side of the police department can take that information and put the officers there. Um, so uh, her name was uh, Susan, uh, well, her name is Susan Heyman right now, and uh, she, we hired her in 2002, 
and she actually got us all set up with uh, dividing our city up into sections that are smaller than our districts. Uh, we were mapping uh, crimes for a number of years, uh, looking at the density of those. Now, at that time, we weren't looking at crashes. The city's traffic engineer was the one who was responsible for that. And so that was the other thing that DX did is we be we began to work with our traffic engineer and set it up to where we could collect crash data and map it as well. And uh, uh, so all this data collection starts with officers on the street taking their reports, gathering the information together, uh, sifting through uh, the information that are in the reports, mapping it out, and, uh, and then pulling it all together when we want to look at something in particular. And you know, it, it is just still, despite having read the study, it's so fascinating because I think we do think of those as two sort of separate areas mm -hmm. of policing. Right. There's traffic and then there's robbery and all that mm -hmm. sort of a, a separate uh, thing. So it's, it is, like I said, even though I read all this, it's still fascinating. So let's, mm -hmm. let's talk about um, undertaking the study and and how you went about it, and and what you what you learned, just on that sort of nuts and bolts uh, level. Sure. Um, we had uh, we had already been talking, Susan, our crime analyst, had already been working with uh, Dr. Bryant uh, on perhaps doing an evaluation of our of our work, and we've been doing DDAG for about a year. When we came across the uh, announcement of this Smart Policing Initiative grant, and so we applied for the grant, which provided funding, which allowed us to hire Dr. Bryant to do the uh, the evaluation of of what we were doing, and we were, at least I was, uh, from a department perspective, I was not only interested in what was happening to the crime. But I also wanted to take a look at impact in the community and impact among the officers who were who were given the job of, of uh, doing this work. Uh, and so it was kind of a three-pronged approach. We were going to do an impact analysis of the uh, of the actual uh, data that we collected uh, with regard to crimes and crashes. But we also uh, conducted focus group interviews with officers. We sent out surveys to the community in the area that we were doing the uh, the intervention or the 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 DDAX, and we also uh, surveyed the business in that community as well, businesses that were located there, to try and get a complete view, uh, as much as possible, a 360 degree view of what DDAX means within the department and within the city. Well, um, so just to, to go back just for a second then, so this is, I think, uh, also great because you're connecting up um, with Kevin to, to get someone who really has the statistical background mm -hmm. in too as well. Okay, so so you start working together, so this ends up in sort of broadly speaking two kinds of analysis Mm -hmm. that end up going out of the state. So tell us about those. Well, the, the funny thing about it is really that uh, uh, I was preparing myself, one, getting the NIJ certification in crime mapping and preparing myself for the quantitative side of things. Um, but I would say probably most of my energy 
was in the focus group uh, and research we did with the police officers and with the surveys of uh, both community residents in the area and businesses in the area, which is not my forte, especially the focus group side of things. And so it was a little bit of learning on the job for me, um, but it, it, it started off a little rocky, and most of that was my fault, uh, just not having the experience. But uh, we quickly um, got everything together, and really, I would say, uh, the entire study is probably the most fascinating part of it in a lot of ways, um, particularly the focus groups of police officers. So that, that's just kind of an interesting thing on how this came together. I think Susan and Greg probably initially thought that I would be coming on board mainly for what I was good at, but I did little to no crime mapping, and uh, the quantitative part, uh, we took it to a certain level, and then actually for the kind of polished report, um, someone from uh, the group that NIJ had hired, a consulting group called CNA, uh, they actually had one of their statisticians take uh, things to a completely different level with a time series analysis, which really supplemented what we found. Uh, and added to it. So, um, yeah, I'm part of the team. You know, we, we were all we all played and worked together really well as a team, and we we had our strengths and weaknesses and discovered new ones. And uh, it was a fascinating journey uh, uh, along the way here. So, yeah, the the actual study of the data was uh, uh, it was set up to where. Initially, we talked about having our, our uh, area, which we, we dubbed the 75th Street Corridor. Right. 75th Street is the, in the southern part of our city, and it was the number one hotspot for crime and crashes. So that was where we were going to do our DDAX intervention. We did DDAX nowhere else in the city except on the 75th Street Corridor. Um, but, and we were just going to compare that to the city as a whole. But that wasn't going to be as strong as if we could find a location that was very similar to 75th Street that we could compare it to. And so we were able to, although there's no place in our city that's exactly like the 75th Street corridor, we had one area in the northern part of our city that was very similar in, in construction as far as land use, uh, businesses, homes, multi-housing units, and that sort of thing. So we used that as our comparison area. And that that lent some more rigor to our analysis as well. Uh, and in our CNA report, they they deem that as a level four on the uh, Maryland Scientific Method scale, which is a scale of one to five. So it was a very rigorous uh, analysis, impact analysis that we were able to do. The the nice thing about all of this, having a comparison area, uh, showing statistically significant uh, decreases mostly in robberies, commercial burglaries, and crashes, is that we can virtually rule out any other causes for those changes aside from DDACs. And, and that was what was really encouraging to us, is that we now had some very strong proof, indication, that what we were doing was the reason for the changes we were seeing. And it gave us reason to continue doing that as well. So there was a significant difference. 
Oh, yes, in, in not in everything, but in in uh, many uh, a few areas, very key areas to us. Well, um, once you got all this done and got this hard work done and collected all your data and put it together in form and you published it, and the uh, National Institutes of Justice said it was a very promising study. What do you see as the impact or implications of this for uh, police departments? Well, I see it as being very valuable information. Um, we we were the first uh, city in the nation to implement DDAX. There were there were eight pilot locations that uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration had done pilot work with. But in 2010, they rolled out an implementation workshop, and the city of Shawnee was the first to actually undergo that implementation workshop. Since that time, we've had a number of our officers uh, and, more, and our uh, former chief of police who are considered subject matter experts. And so one of, one of those persons right now is uh, Sergeant Phil Berger, and uh, he goes around with uh, uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the IATLIST, who, who actually does the implementation, uh, he goes around and, and does these implementation workshops. And so 700 agencies in the United States have received training on DDAX uh, since 2010. And uh, we've been, we've been uh, played a great deal of, uh, of, or we've been helpful in, in helping that happen. Uh, but uh, uh, Phil Berger has been to uh, the New York City Police Department because they are adopting DDAX. Uh, other locations like Philadelphia has used DDAX. Kansas City, Missouri has received training on it. So there's a number of, uh, of large locations uh, uh, throughout the United States, but also smaller agencies like our own uh, who have adopted it. So it's beneficial as a standalone but also in conjunction with other practices that an agency might want to do. Well, uh, how long did all this take? I mean, from, from the time you, you conceptualized what you were going to do to you got the final product, what time frame are we talking about here? Oh, uh, 2010 to – I came on board in 2011 after we, we secured the grant in September of 2011. Um, we didn't get – uh, working in earnest until the beginning of that next calendar year, but uh, we actually took an extension to get uh, additional data collected, get the final report written. Uh, we were still working on that final report in spring of 2014. Mm -hmm. But the the actual time frame that we looked oh. at was uh, 2010 to 2013, but yeah, right. it was 2014 right. before we were able to, to complete everything. That's right. So, in your study, did implementing the DDAX cost a lot of money? No, absolutely not. And that was the, one of the nice things about that we that we learned. Um, you know, officers, at least in the city of Shawnee, now different locations, their officers have different workloads going on. But officers in Shawnee had enough time within their day that we could say, look, these are the target times that we want you to work in the DDAX location. And so we assigned certain officers, told, let them know what the target times were, and that during their unassigned times when they're not answering calls for service, they would spend time in those DDAX locations. 
or in that DX location, we've got more than one now. Um, and so they uh, they were able to do it on their regular duty time. We didn't have to do this as a special assignment, a special project. We didn't have to assign overtime to get it done. It was all done with uh, regular resources during regular work hours. And that was sort of the beauty of it is that it, in, in a down economic time, as we were coming through, and our police force had actually lost uh, almost 5% of our police force, uh, being able to do this without having uh, to allocate additional resources to it was key. And that was, that was one of the things that was, uh, that was very nice to be able to show. Well, at the end of the day, what, what do you think this study tells you about uh, criminal behavior? Ooh, that, that's kind of a tough question because we really didn't, um, you know, do a study trying to explain criminal behavior. But what I think it does do is it supports the idea that place is important, not that criminal, looking at individual criminal behavior is not. Uh, it reinforces the idea that place is important. It reinforces the idea that without criminal opportunities, um, there is no criminal behavior. You've got to have an op the most motivated Serial killer isn't going to kill anyone unless they have an opportunity. Right. And so uh, that's probably a bad example here because that's not the kind of crime we we were generally seeing here. But we saw, you know, robbery is a pretty serious crime. It's a bellwether crime, and we reduced it. Uh, it was reduced in the DDAC zone by 70 percent. That's uh, a pretty pretty large number. And, and yeah. so uh, I do think it does have some uh, relevance here, but. Um, I think that's what it does. I think that um, there certainly are some implications for criminal motivation, but that was not the focus of this study. Yeah, one of, one of the things is, you know, by having officers making high-visibility traffic stops, making contacts with people, there, there are some things. And, and some, one of the theories about DDAX is that criminals are mobile. They're in cars. They're moving from place to place. Uh, place matters because... Uh, with um, a rational choice theory, you know, criminals will decide where to go to commit a crime that will have the best cost benefit for them, the, the smaller risk and the highest reward. Well, by having officers out with their overhead lights going, making traffic stops, and not just driving through an area, it gives people in that area, whether they be law-abiding citizens or criminals in that area, they know that the, the police are there, one, and two, that they're working, that they're not just sitting around uh, uh, driving through an area or going from place to place, that they are there looking for people, making stops. And so the idea is that we are going to deter people from this area. And one of the best examples that I, that I can pull out on this is we have a Subway restaurant that's located in our DDAX location on 75th Street. This was a place that at least annually was being robbed, and in the last quarter of 2009 and the first quarter of 2010, they had been robbed three times. Uh, after we started DDAX in July of 2010, they had not experienced another robbery for five years. Uh, and so that, that to me, uh, when we surveyed the business community, of course, they received one of those surveys, and in, in one of the questions we asked was, you know, have you been the victim of a crime before? What was it? Uh, how long ago was it? 
and their response was that they had been they had been robbed, and at the time it had been three years since we started DDAX. They said, but we haven't had a robbery in three years, and they wrote on there, thank you very much. Uh, they had seen the they had seen the increased police presence, and that was something that was pretty universal, especially with the business. Uh, communities. They had noticed the police, increased police presence. They had noticed the increased stops. And uh, that's what we were shooting for, is, is getting people to see us out there and doing this. One of the other things that I didn't find until later, uh, that there was a study done in 1995 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, by uh, Chris Coper. Uh, and they call, his theory is what they call the Coper Curve. And what that what it states is it has to do with the police in an area being active, and they had observers in that area watching what was happening with crime and disorder when the police were just driving through or when they were there making stops on people, and they found that there was a deterrent effect in disorder following officers making stops in an area. It wasn't so much when they were driving through, but when officers were making stops that lasted, I believe, between 11 and 20 minutes, that it then had a deterrent effect after the officer was gone. And so that's another thing that DX kind of draws on is that, that COPA curve theory that if you're out there uh, and you're working and have, having a visible presence making stops, you're going to have a deterrent effect on folks. So for the average citizen, um, we've got obviously some of the results here in terms of for the businesses and, and for the people living in the community, but for people who are, say, listening to this show who aren't in law enforcement or um, able to as Kevin does, um, what do those results mean, and, and what should we be doing differently in our communities? Ooh, that's a, well, I think with all the, the press that we've had on, on bad citizen encounters with the police, I think that our research and the DDoX philosophy in general shows that uh, police citizen encounters can be positive. Uh, the officers in Shawnee were encouraged to make contacts, not write tickets. Uh, if a ticket was necessary, then that would be done, but uh, it was not a ticket-counting kind of uh, uh, approach here. It was about having contact ostensibly positive, and many, if most were, and I think it allows citizens to see policing, and, and this came out of our community survey, they see the police as being on their side, as being... Uh, um, fellow stakeholders in what everybody wants, which is a safe community and a high quality of life. So um, I, I think that's one of the things that, that comes out of this is that when when officers are pulling you over, they may not be, they're not trying to get you into trouble. They're trying to keep everyone safe, and I think that's an important point. And I really, frankly, I think police can learn a lot from this too, not just the average citizen, about how police encounters should go. Uh, and so I think that's a really important thing, especially given the news since the end of our since our study ended. Things have just have gotten pretty, have gone from, from bad to worse in, in a lot of ways in a lot of cities, especially in terms of the community view of police, the way the media portrays it. And, and I think our study shows a little different side of that. You know, when when we asked officers to make stops, there was 
there was one of four outcomes we were looking for from those stops. A citation, uh, an arrest, a warning, or a, what we call a field interview card, where we just gather that, that person's information. And officers were not told how many of each that they needed to get or anything like that. And in fact, they were told that warnings matter just as much as, as citations. Um, and our, our warning, the warnings that officers were writing went up immensely. Uh, the tickets went up a little bit, but the warnings are what really climbed. And that was fine. The, the chief at the time said, I just want you making contacts. And if it results in a warning, uh, so be it, uh, because it's the contacts, it's having the overhead lights going, and those kinds of things that that are the the basis of what what DDAX is about is deterring and uh, uh, keeping the residents safe. And one of the one of the things for the citizen is when you see that robberies decrease by you know, 70%, and then in the interrupted time series, which is a different kind of analysis, it showed an 80% decrease. What what you're seeing there is those are fewer victims of crime that you have in that location. And that's the real implication is that what we want, we're wanting to reduce social harms. And if we can reduce the number of victims that are out there, then that's what we're looking to do. Okay. Well, you mentioned the uh, subway and how mm -hmm. it lowered the incidence of crime uh, dramatically, 70%. Mm -hmm. uh, but does this hotspot policing just kick crime down the road? What about the subway that's 12 blocks away? Did they see an uptick, or was this an overall reduction? Can we, would you like to? Sure. We, we uh, looked at that very seriously, the issue of it's called crime displacement. And there's different forms. There's crime displacement. There's temporal displacement, moving, you know, crime to a different time. Um, there, there's different forms of displacement. And um, we we looked for spatial displacement, and we really didn't find any um, evidence of that. We looked at a, uh, the areas nearby, for example, in Nexa, Kansas, uh, other areas in Shawnee. We saw no sign of it. In fact, what we found, which is often found, in studies that emphasize proactive crime prevention, which is, I, I think DDAX, it's fair to say, falls under that umbrella. Uh, what we actually found was is that we made those places safer too, or at least there's some evidence of that. Uh, we didn't just move it around. I, I think it defies common sense to say displacement never occurs. I'm not suggesting that, but we didn't see it in our study the way we looked at it. Mm -hmm. One of the things that that uh, when when you consider place and you consider place being important to having crime occur, not all places are are created equal as far as as being uh, at risk for crime, and therefore if you have a place where a lot of crime occurs and you do things to reduce that crime, it's, it's unlikely that even if it does displace, that it's going to displace at a one-to-one -one ratio. That it's the, the reason it's happening there is because that's the best place for it to happen. Right. So when you take that place away, the other places which are less desirable are not likely to see a huge spike because if they were as good as, as the first place, 
it would have been happening at the same rate in those other locations to begin with. That's right. And so we we also, when we checked with Lonexa, we asked them to look at uh, the same time period, the same types of crime, and they saw very similar reductions uh, in in the same types of crimes to what we were seeing in our DDAX location. Now, they border us to the south, and so we looked at an area, we asked them to look at an area that was similar in size to our DDAX location, and so that's where they, they uh, drew their data from. And they were, we also asked them, were you doing any kind of special enforcement or anything like that? They said, no, we were just, they were just operating as they, as they always did. Now, the people who wish to commit crimes may not know the border where Shawnee and Lenexa is, and, and we both drive cars that are black and white with different door shields. But, uh, so they, they may not distinguish the difference, uh, between Shawnee or Lenexa cars or, or Shawnee or Lenexa location to commit a crime. But Lenexa was seeing some benefit from what we were doing. Right. Well, this is amazing stuff. Uh, and obviously, uh, I've been greatly helpful, you know, coast to coast. Mm-hmm. But what are you working on now, or what do you see down the road that you'd like to be working on? Well, Kevin brought something to our attention that we haven't had much opportunity to work with it yet, but it's it's something known as risk, risk terrain modeling. Uh, I've also been been doing some reading by David Weisberg on uh, micro uh, places, which in in many cases now they are not just looking at like police districts uh, or uh, uh, census tracts. They're drilling down to street segments, and because they're even finding there's wide variability within a geographic area uh, in crime in, in particular street segments. Uh, Weisberg did a study of uh, Seattle that that was looked at 16 years of data, and they found that five. And I'm going from memory here, but they found that 5% of their street segments in Seattle was responsible for 50% of the crime that was going on there. And mm-hmm. so those are the kinds of things we're wanting to look at. I'll let, I'll let Kevin talk about the risk terrain modeling and, and uh, uh, the, the uh, people who are responsible for developing that uh, method of, of looking at crime reduction. Yeah, risk terrain modeling is... Uh Pretty interesting, and it also really is based on a different idea of the hotspot. The the idea, the traditional idea of a crime hotspot is based on retrospective data. You know, it's been high, it's disproportionately high in a certain area, and that's how we form our hotspot. Risk rate modeling takes a little bit different approach. It actually tries, it, first of all, it's not necessarily based on retrospective crime. It's based on the idea of forecasting future crime. Now, this is not, this might be another episode, <laughs> this is not minority report, um, but it is about, it is kind of the idea of being able to forecast out uh, and try to predict uh, emergent crime hotspots. And crime hotspots tend not to change a lot, but they, like Greg was saying, um, as we drill down to finer units of analysis, uh, the, the risk train folks I'm about to mention, they use a grid system 
that is, you know, fairly small micro area, um, very similar to what was done methodologically in the Seattle study. And um, we're beginning to now be able to uh, uh, predict the risk of crime uh, out into the future, out to about six months, with pretty uncanny accuracy. Um, Risk-free modeling was developed by researchers at Rutgers University, uh, Joel Kaplan and Leslie Kennedy. These are definitely folks that I bet your listeners would enjoy a talk from. Uh, the RTM or risk modeling approach has really, risk-free modeling approach has really taken off. Um, it's been applied to a lot of other areas, such as terrorism, um, public health. Uh, it's, it's actually methodologically a lot like geographic information systems, which are used to develop crime maps. But this is a whole new type of crime mapping. Um, Joel uh, is a former police officer himself. Um, he understands the importance of being able to get officers home safely at night. And uh, when you start talking about risk and, and, you know, police officers can relate to that. And so the idea of actually developing a risk map uh, of heightened risk, I think, makes a lot of sense, particularly when we're talking about human subjects. And they're, they're unpredictable. Um, they do follow some patterns. And um, in terms of some of the uh, deterrence, aspects related to criminal behavior, I missed that, and Greg uh, picked up on that. Uh, that's really important here, and so uh, it's hard to determine your crime isn't, you could walk to a, to a high crime neighborhood right now and be perfectly safe. Why? Because crime isn't happening right now. And even during a high crime time, it, the, the high crime may be across the street. Um, risk makes a lot more sense, I think. It's not a deterministic science that we're doing here. This is it's based on probabilities and risk training modeling really incorporates that and I'm I'm really excited about the possibility of doing some work in that area. Um, uh, Kaplan and, and Kennedy uh, are are wonderful. In fact we had Joel Kaplan do a workshop at the Shawnee Police Department. Uh, I guess it's been a couple of years now mm -hmm. um, and that was very well received and well attended. And uh, I think that's really, it's certainly the future of crime mapping. There's no question about that. And it really is a logical extension of DDAX. It's, it, it is something that you could use with the DDAX philosophy, I think, rather easily. Well, this is all uh, some fascinating possibilities, which brings us uh, to my next question, which is, how research on effective policing methods is funded, and and what can people in the public do to ensure that this kind of research is continued? Well, um, as far as uh, as far as the, the work that we did, it was funded by the Department of Justice, Office of Justice Programs, Bureau of Justice Assistance, uh, and their Smart Policing Initiative. Now, the whole idea behind smart policing initiatives is to, is to look for data-driven approaches which are innovative, and that's why DDAX uh, was a perfect fit for that. Um, they continue to be funded, and in fact, the model of, of data-driven approaches in other aspects of criminal justice, uh, so they call it a smart suite now, 
because they, they have it for, uh, uh, I believe, for corrections and for courts as well. They are funding uh, different uh, different studies on, on in those avenues or parts of the criminal justice system. Uh, so, you know, this, this type of funding is coming through uh, the federal government, but I believe there are some other, other uh, funding sources which are private, um, and uh, something that, that's being worked on right now by uh, the John Jay College is uh, they're working on looking at uh, misdemeanor arrests, and uh, that is that is a private-funded study that's being done by them. So uh, as far as the exact stream of funding, I think, you know, the federal government does a real good job, and something I've discovered is that they're not just they're not just taking the public's money and just throwing it at things. They they actually demand accountability. They demand uh, uh, that you supply them with performance measures. Now, not every one of these studies uh, is determined to be effective, but we need to know that too. If something isn't working, uh, the criminal justice system needs to know that as well. But they do ask that you provide uh, uh, reports on the effectiveness of what you're doing and not just uh, uh, sending the money out there and not expecting something back in return. Right. That's actually, those, those negative results can sometimes be <laughs> very important. I think yeah. people have been looking a lot at this in, in science in general. Um, mm -hmm. You know that that sometimes uh, negative outcomes aren't um, given the place in publications and so on. So I think what the NIJ is doing is, and the Office of uh, Justice Programs is doing is, is super important. So yeah, we need to make sure that those areas keep getting funded. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I think also. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think also they're they're trying to follow now. Uh, the uh, uh, like what medical science is doing, and that that's you know they're actually trying to ingrain an idea of doing as much as possible uh, randomized controlled studies within law enforcement and within criminal justice to try and identify whether something actually works or not. Because right. for for decades, you know, it, we believe these things to be true, but it's not been set out to find out in practice whether they're actually working or not. In in the early 1990s uh, in Shawnee, uh, we had some problems with, with uh, some gang uh, activity that was going on in the same place, in, in what's now our DDAX location, and we, uh, we provided additional patrol looking for people who were possibly gang members, uh, looking to, to commit different kinds of crimes, whether it be drugs, alcohol, weapons violations, those kinds of things. And we, we didn't quantifiably track it, but we saw that we weren't answering the same kinds of calls for service after we did that. And so I think what we're doing now isn't really much different than what we were doing there. The difference is is that we are we are looking for and tracking the 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 actual change that occurred, uh, and rather than just assuming that a change occurred, we looked at 
the fact that yes, it actually did, and yes, this is the reason for it. Right. Well, I think we're just about run out of time here. We have. <laughs> I think we have. But we have really enjoyed this, and um, we want to remind our listeners that on Crime and Science Radio dot com um, and on Doug's site. I'll let Doug give you that um, URL here. Ttlmd.com. Right, and on both of those sites, um, you'll find links on uh, information that we talked about, um, links you can follow to learn more, to read the study that uh, excited um, Doug and me about this. So um, there's going to be a lot of information up on those sites. And um, as well as access to other shows and more information about Crime and Science Radio. We thank you so much. Absolutely. Uh, Greg and Kevin, it's been great, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Enjoyed it. No problem. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.